This program is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. To my immediate right, I have Professor Rachel Cobb. She is an assistant professor in the government department. We also have Professor Terry Fair, who is also an assistant professor in the government department. Professor Nina Hunteman, who is an assistant professor in communications and journalism. And then last but not least, um, Professor Benjamin Powell, who is an assistant professor in the economics department. And, and before I give them the word, um, I just want to make some few, um, some few introductory remarks. And when we look at um, what happened over the last three months, it's hard not to sympathize with the new administration. Um, the challenges that they have been facing from probably the worst economic recession since the Great Depression in the 1930s to two wars, one in Afghanistan, another one in Iraq, and countless problems, both domestic and international, this will have been daunting for any administration. And, and in many ways, um, it's spectacular to see how much progress we've made in some of these issues over the last three months. Um, President Obama, from day one, he has tried to live up to the stated goal that was um, set up by his chief of staff, Emmanuel. And he said in, in an interview um, after the, um, the election that he did not want, and I'm quoting, to let an economic crisis go to waste. And they've been trying to use um, the crisis that we're facing as an opportunity to push a very ambitious agenda. And President Obama hit the, the ground running, and he has pursued a number of issues. Um, he signed an $800 billion stimulus bill within weeks after the inauguration. He's already been working on a new set of regulations for the financial sector. He has developed already plans to try to sort up the housing and the financial sector. He's already proposed sweeping reforms in important fields like energy, the environment, and education. He's also restored the rule of law in the way that the U.S. government treats detainees in custody, and he's rejected um, the torture that supposedly has happened in the past. Um, he's also addressed the potential collapse of the automaker industry. And earlier this month, at the beginning of April, he won passage of a $3.5 trillion budget that is a radical departure from the previous budgets over the last um, eight years in terms of the tax and spending priorities. And it seems to indicate a stronger focus on addressing the increasing inequality that has been creeping up over the last decade or so. But also his activism has extended not just to the domestic arena, but also to the international arena. And he's already worked on a plan to end the war in Iraq and to pull out the troops, as he promised during the electoral campaign. He's also deepened the country's involvement in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And at the G20 meeting last month, he committed in principle to the development of a new regulatory framework for the financial sector. And he also worked to convince other leaders to port consensus on a new stimulus package to tackle the crisis. He's also lifted travel and spending restrictions from Cuban Americans traveling to Cuba. And in the recent summit of the Americas that took place in, in the Caribbean last week, 
Um, he started working with the neighboring countries in the south to address some of the most thorniest and um, issues that have separated um, the United States from other Latin American countries, including tending an open hand to some of the most vociferous enemies of the U.S. Um, in Cuba and Venezuela. So I don't think that it would be an understatement to claim that President Obama is trying to restore something that has been forgotten for the last few years, which is the art <coughs> of presidential diplomacy. And it's been remarkable to see how popular and how well-received he's been during his trips abroad. Now, despite all this activism, he's been, um, he's been accused of not having clear principles or a clear ideology. Um, his actions pretty much seems to be dictated and guided by a strong sense of pragmatism that has been very much criticized both from the left and from the right. On the left, they accuse him of too much compromising, too much consensus, and not living up to some of the promises that he made during the electoral campaign. And on the right, of course, they're accusing him of socialism and trying to change the U.S. model. It's also been interesting to see how the press has reacted to this new president. I remember um, during the electoral campaign, there were some sketches for some of you who follow Saturday Night Live. Um, they were very critical of the press and the way that they loved this president and how little they challenged him. Um, but they have been both extremes. On the, on the right, um, they've been accusing him and comparing the Obama's policies to socialism and communism. And, and on the, um, the mainstream media, again, it has they treated him with very kind gloves. So there is some sort of what people refer to an adulation syndrome. So these are just some of the major topics that we hope to cover here in this panel. And to do so, again, we have a great group of um, faculty members. And I'm just <coughs> going to give them the word now. And we'll start with Professor Ray Solcott. Right. The title of my talk today is Obama's First 100 Days, What Mandate? And I ask this question because on election night, when the results rolled in, the LA Times, Time Magazine, CBS News, and countless other major, essentially mainstream media organizations argued that Obama had ushered in a, a new era in American politics, that if you were among the 70 million people who voted for him, um, you believed that bipartisanship was going to rise again, that there was going to be a more united country, and that um, we would see some massive legislation as a result of the mandate that he had theoretically brought to um, the election. <clears throat> and that we would have a slew of legislative achievements ushering in legislation on health care, the economy, energy, and the environment. So two questions come to mind when we consider this in trying to analyze Obama's success thus far. What do we mean by mandate? And what do we mean by change? The main puzzle I want to investigate is, if Obama has such a big mandate, why hasn't he been able to achieve the bipartisan results of which he spoke? My main argument is that Obama actually does not have a mandate. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of wiggle room in American politics, and he's actually quite constrained. The primary explanation for this 
derives from how I understand uh, the electoral results to function in American democracy and what our <coughs> shared system of power means to the power of the presidency and to the power of any one branch. Ultimately, I argue that Congress dominates American political outcomes far more than the presidency. In this talk, I'll begin by grounding us in some of the basic empirical data. We're going to review the 2008 election results and the 2008 congressional election results. And then I'm going to put these into some broader context, understanding them from the vantage point of presidential coattails. And finally, I'll briefly discuss presidential power and how we understand it better in the context of this being the most polarized Congress since post-Reconstruction. So first, a quick review of the Electoral College map in 2008. Obama won 53% uh, of the of the popular vote, and he won 28 states and lost 22. Um, there was a 10 million vote difference between him and John McCain, and, uh, and he had a 7.3% margin of victory. So that seems pretty big. Well, how does it stack up in terms of historical standards? The yellow on these re uh, refer to incumbent presidents, who obviously have much bigger margins of victory than others. So Obama down at 7.3% is actually quite large since 1976 and Jimmy Carter is 2.1. Ronald Reagan had a slightly larger one. He's right on par with George H.W. Bush. Bill Clinton had a lower one and George W. Bush had negative 0.5. Okay. Uh, this chart presents the margin of victory the winning presidential candidate achieved between 19... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This chart <laughs> outlines the breakdown of both chambers of Congress by party. So these are the congressional election results. The Democrats have... The Democrats have a wide majority in the House, not as big a one in the Senate, and not a filibuster-proof majority, even if Al Franken ends up winning Minnesota, which by all estimates he has, but we, the time will tell. It's amazing how many votes can get lost in just a few months. Um, uh, the, it, they'll still, the Democrats will only be at 59, so they won't have the 60 to beat the filibuster. Still, with the Democrats in control of both chambers, the presidency and the presidency, shouldn't Obama be able to get the legislative agenda through? Well, there are several ways of assessing Congress and its makeup. And today, I'm only going to focus on the electoral results. There are lots of other ways to look at it. We can look at ideology. We can look at their geographical regions. We can look at all kinds of things. But today, it's just the election. So in order to talk about how the election results shape Congress, I want to take, talk about presidential coattails. First, a definition of the idea of what are presidential coattails. <coughs> and the idea is that if the successful presidential candidate assists in the election of his or her party's slate of candidates in Congress, then the congressional candidates win on the coattails of the president. The idea is that the congressional candidates benefit from the presence of a dynamic presidential candidate and thus win on the coattails. So this is the theoretical model from which we examine it. The causal arrows look something like this. There is a presidential campaign. The presidency is the prize. And presidential candidates become the focus for the mass, vast majority of national media attention and campaign contributions. 
the media attention, the hoopla, the money, all of this excites the electorate. And this aspect generates incentives for legislative candidates to organize their own campaigns around the presidential campaign in the hope of benefiting from his or her organizational, financial, and media advantages. The theoretical framework, therefore, predicts that one should observe electoral parties being swept into, into the legislature on the coattails of the presidential candidate. And this further provides a final theoretical prediction, which is that the length of the president's coattails impacts his or her ability to govern effectively, because it tells you what the size or the leverage of the mandate actually is. So the smaller the coattails, the less the mandate, the bigger the coattails, the bigger the mandate. So how do we measure the mandate? Well, one way is to estimate that the degree to which members of Congress feel that their own election depended in part on the voters who came to the polls to support Obama. In theory, this means that presidential coattails um, matter quite a bit. Presidential coattails have been quite short, however, in the modern era. But based on the initial press reactions that claimed an electoral mandate for Obama, there was some reason to believe that his coattails might extend a good deal longer than those of his recent predecessors. And so I hope the burning question for all of you is how do we measure them? Well, we measure them because by doing this. We calculate presidential coattails by comparing the percentage won by each House, Senate candidate of the President's party with the same percentage of the vote won by the President in that district, and that's the critical piece, is in that district. Calculated by comparing the percentage of the, uh, um, I'm sorry, those districts where the presidential candidate's percentage is higher than the successful House or Senate candidate are considered examples of presidential coattails. So for example, in the 7th Congressional District, Representative Ed Markey won 76% of the vote. Now I don't know how much Obama won in that district, I couldn't find that very quickly. But let's say that he only won 65% just for the sake, of, which probably is not true, it's probably higher, but anyway. Our conclusion is, let's say that it was still, it was still smaller than Markey's. Our conclusion is that Markey won without Obama's coattails. He, Markey, won outright. The bottom line is that what we care about are the districts in which the president ran ahead of the winning Senate or House candidate. Why? Because those are the districts in which he had coattails, and the districts in which he had coattails are the districts where he has leverage. So let's take two quick informal polls right here, one for the House and one for the Senate. How many of you think that Obama ran ahead of about 50% of Senate candidates? How many of you think he won about 25% ahead? 10%? Okay. Let's go to the House. How many of you think that Obama ran ahead of 50% of House candidates? 25%? 10%? All right. Well, you low ones, you are right. <laughs> In fact, his numbers are rather dismal. In the Senate, he ran ahead of only five of the 33 Senate candidates. <clears throat> he ran ahead of only 37 Democrats out of a total of, and in the House, he ran ahead of only 37 Democrats out of a total of 257 and 10 Republicans. Which is to say that in 85% and 89% of the races, respectively, Obama did worse in these districts. 
So how does you might, the next question might be, well, how does that compare historically? Good question, I think. <laughs> so this chart presents the data in descending order of presidential coattails. Looking at the top row, we see that Eisenhower had 57% of the popular vote, and he ran ahead of 155 House candidates. Johnson ran ahead of 134 House candidates. Nixon ran ahead of 104 House candidates. In 1992, Clinton, at the bottom, with only 43% of the popular vote, ran ahead of only four House candidates. Can you say health care reform? Obama is right there in the middle. Obama's coattails are much shorter than those of previous presidents during the last half century who might claim to have won an electoral mandate. And that is the claim that I'm judging this against. Eisenhower, Johnson, and Nixon all ran ahead of more than 100 victorious House candidates of their own party. So Obama's election is about average for the post-World War II presidents, but when it comes to coattails, he's most similar to Reagan in 1980 and Bush in 2004. <coughs> So what does this mean? What does all of this stack up to? Well, it means that members of Congress and the president respond to wholly different constituencies. The president responds to the whole country. Senators are responsive to their states. House members are responsive to their legislative districts. So why would a Republican senator from Wyoming care that Obama won 53% of the vote and the national popular vote when he was crushed in Wyoming with only 33% of the vote there? The point here is the broader point about our system of government. We have separated institutions that share power in the grand words of Richard Neustadt. <clears throat> the President and Congress share governing responsibilities and the American system ensures that both will do so from fundamentally different vantage points because of the different constituencies, their terms of office and their responsibilities. So that makes Obama's political capital a variable resource that is based in these numbers. And its worth depends on how well it facilitates his ability to convince members he will serve their political interests through bargaining, <laughs> compromise, and debate. Richard Neustadt wrote a famed book that um, everybody who has studied the presidency has read, uh, Presidential Power and Modern Presidents. And he wrote in this book that presidential power is the power to persuade. And persuasion and bargaining are the means that presidents use to influence policy. And in his theoretical view of how presidents exercise this influence, it derives from three sources. The first is, are the advantages inherent in the job, simply the perks that you get of being president and your ability to tell people to do things. The second is the expectations of the people regarding the president's ability and will. So what do we expect? What do we believe his will to do something is? And the third is estimations of how the public views him. So how we estimate the public views him and how Congress's publics view them if they do what he wants. So basically, if your House member does what Obama wants, how, how is my district, if I am a House member, how is my district going to view me? So Congress cares how their public views them because they're the ones who are up for re-election. Senators have their six-year terms, but of course House members only have their two-year terms, and so they're acutely sensitive to their constituents and their constituents' concerns. They don't have an incentive to worry about how the public views Obama if they are more popular than Obama. <coughs> so my final data focuses on the political environment in which we currently insist, and there are two words describe the current political environment, partisan and polarized. 
According to Congressional Quarterly, only 19% of the 435 House districts split their vote by supporting a member of one party for the House and the presidential candidate of the opposing party. Similarly, exit polls indicate that only 19% of individual voters in House elections split their ballot in this manner. So you can see that 83, the number of House vote, split ticket votes in 2008, is essentially on par with 1952, but far lower than, than sort of essentially what we might consider to be an era of split ticket voting. In short, the two most recent presidential elections have returned the smallest number of split ticket dis split districts in the last half century of national elections. Put another way, there is a dwindling number of districts in which a House representative has any incentive to work with the president of the opposing party. My final data comes from uh, McCarty, Poole, and Rosenthal, who have developed these scores to figure out the degree of party polarization in American politics. And it's sort of complex, and I won't explain it, but the bottom line is that there has been a dramatic decline in the number of moderates over time and a huge increase in the number of far liberals and far conservatives in Congress. Political scientist Gary Jacobson describes it this way. To a voter today, a party label is an informative piece of information in a way that it isn't when there are more conservative Democrats around and more moderate Republicans around. People who call themselves conservatives are more Republican than they used to be, and people who call themselves Democrats are more liberal than they used to be. So parties are also voting as a block for far more than they used to. And note how the numbers today approach post-Reconstruction era figures. The main thing to look at is this line in both charts and to see that in this era it was above there and then it really was way down for the bulk of the 20th century and it has gone way up in recent years. And so the final graph illustrating this is party polarization has increased substantially. In fact, if you included 2009 figures on this graph, polar party polarization is now at a post-reconstruction high in both the House and Senate. So lest you think it's only Congress, voters are showing it too. In the most recent uh, Pew poll of American voters, in terms of job approval rating for, for Obama, the difference between how Republicans and Democrats view him is far higher than it has been in recent years. So because I probably have negative five seconds left, my concluding thoughts are all politics is local. Institutional design incentivizes a word I don't like, but I thought it was useful to this, to this uh, PowerPoint. And in a polarized and partisan environment, it is no wonder that Republican defections are rare or that Obama is having a tough time twisting arms. And then I have other graphs that are relevant. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Professor Terry Fair. Good afternoon. My presentation will look at um, Obama's social policy. Uh, during the Obama campaign, he made a number of um, statements regarding many of the social policy initiatives, which was uh, responsible for getting him a lot of support from various um, constituent bases. So I think it's really interesting to look at what his campaign promises were and his actual steps toward uh, fulfilling many of these promises. Okay. 
uh, toward fulfilling some of these promises. Um, but I also think it's interesting to look at this in an intersectional way, and that's the theory that I will be utilizing, intersectionality, which is looking at uh, more than one variable uh, with regards to the lives of citizens uh, in analyzing the policy impact. Um, so the three variables that I'm choosing are race, class, and gender, and the policy areas that I'll be reviewing are poverty, housing, community development, education, healthcare, social security, women and families, immigration, public service, because that is a component of uh, Obama's social policy, as well as some aspects of civil rights. Now, I think it's worth noting that within the first 100 days, one thing that we can note is that Obama's, most of his activity or a significant portion of his activity has been international. So um, we haven't really seen as much um, development uh, and push with regards to many of the social policy promises that he's made. So there are a few cases of few steps that have been made uh, specifically uh, toward these policies area, policy areas. So that kind of counts for the low number of, of instances that I have um, in my uh, evaluation. So I think it's interesting if we were to look at poverty. Uh, given what I know uh, Ben is going to mention and some of what uh, Sebastian did mention with regards to the economic crisis that we're facing, it has exacerbated many of the realities um, with nationally but also locally with regards to poverty. But one thing that studies are beginning to show is that the impact has been uh, disparate, meaning that every, the levels of poverty that we're beginning to see and the groups that are most affected in terms of a deepening uh, impoverishment are not equal across groups. And one thing that we've been able to see, if you were to look at the unemployment data, um, you, you, can actually in, you can actually see that groups that, are, um, that identify themselves as racial ethnic minority who, who are also um, exp at the lower end of the economic spectrum are affected disproportionately more with regards to the level of unemployment, meaning that if we were to aggregate these groups together, we're looking at an 8.56% unemployment rate versus the upper middle class or individuals who are white and upper class They're actually experiencing uh, a much less um, in terms of um, a, a lower unemployment rate uh, within the, the next over these past few months. Uh, but that's not to say that poverty isn't deepening and that these aren't serious issues. But I think it does set up an inter interesting discussion when we begin to look at policy remedies and policy solutions. And so um, a number of cities have tried to uh, come up with innovative strategies, waiting for the economic stimulus money to trickle down uh, into their communities and into their areas. But if we were to look at some of the policy areas that Obama has promised uh, or at least attempted to commit some funds pre-election, and if we were to look at where he's actually put these funds so far, I think what we'll see is there's actually a lag and a gap. We haven't really seen as much, as many steps toward uh, poverty uh, eradication or addressing some of these issues. And the question becomes, is it because there's a shift in the perception of ind individual level factors that are contributing to poverty versus larger institutional factors that are contributing to poverty? And we know institutional changes are much slower in terms of producing a result or a uh, outcome or effect. So as a result, within these few, what, 93 days, we really can't begin to truly measure, uh, measure uh, the outcome of the impact. So if we were to look at some of the policy areas that um, Obama did um, indicate that his uh, commitment to funds, we can see um, a promise to expand access to jobs. If we were to look at the Obama-Biden blueprint plan, um, there's a, 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 a 
commitment to invest over $1 billion over five years to transitional jobs and career pathways for lower income Americans. Um, and a, a significant portion of these jobs um, integrate green collar jobs as well as blue collar jobs. Um, and so we do see this green incentive uh, being in incorporated into this job creation strategy, as well as improving transportation access, um, providing support for ex-offenders uh, to integrate into the uh, workforce through job training, substance abuse uh, treatment, as well as mental health counseling. Um, expansion of the earned income credit, uh, right, raising the middle, um, the minimum wage, providing some levels of tax relief. Um, but as I said, it's just been we haven't really seen as many steps in this area at the individual level and at the local level um, because of this deepening uh, um, economic crisis and also because the stimulus package has just passed. A number of the funds were just dispersed to a number of the agencies that could actually begin to implement these programs. Most of the agencies did not receive the funds until April 2nd or April 10th. Uh, most of the uh, requests for proposals by these agencies for the grant funds are just now starting to indicate the specifications uh, and the criteria for getting these funds. So we really don't have much to go on with regards to this. Now we have seen a number of cities and a number of states petition the Obama administration uh, either individually or collectively through their agencies and organizations to try to receive some funds so they can begin to make a difference at the state level. But if we were to look at, but I see that as separate from uh, Obama administration um, uh, I hate to use the word earmarks, funds that were earmarked specifically for many of these programs because, as I said, they haven't really, we haven't really had enough time to see this, uh, to see the change. Now, I think what's also interesting, if we were to use this intersectional lens, one of the critiques that I will provide with regards to policy movement, particularly in this area of poverty, uh, is the lack of the use of the word poverty at a point in time when definitely is impacting quality of life. It's definitely, it is definitely a word that can be used to characterize the reality and the phenomena that's happening in so many urban areas and so many individuals' lives. So the question that, that must be raised is, is there a catalytic uh, can there be and will there be a catalytic governmental role played by the Obama administration with regards to addressing many of these poverty concerns, particularly at the individual level, given that um, we can indicate, we can find some um, class variation uh, in, in, with regards to the true impact of, of, of layoffs and unemployment rate increasing, uh, as well as the gender impact with regards to more men are losing their, men are losing their jobs at a higher rate than our women. But if we were to look at many of the policies are geared toward, um, some of the policies are feminized and not necessarily masculinized in terms of providing assistance and aid to households. So what does that look like? Uh, looking at single parent, um, addressing um, women's concerns, but I think when we begin to look at gender balance with, the, with, the, with regards to policy impact, we don't often look at it in terms of providing some level of, um, of male um, uh, role support. And I think that's an interesting, interesting point of analysis. Um, the next uh, policy area is looking at housing. Now, granted, quite a, a several billion dollars were um, designated and given to HUD, uh, particularly if we were to look at um, just trying to keep the housing market buoyant and keep it viable. Um, I don't, I don't know. Are you going to talk about um, Fannie Mae and or any of that? Because we talked, we talked about this last um, during the, the pre-election. Um, um, panel. But I think it's interesting if we were to look at, so what's really going on with regards to housing policy? Are we finding enough funding and enough support to keep many of the communities actually resilient, bouncing back from uh, much of the devastation that with regards to, um, with regards to housing? 
um, the the, uh, the housing crisis. And so what we've begun to see is a commitment on the part of the Obama administration through funds that have been designated to HUD in order to provide a, a larger number and a larger amount of funds that can be allocated through the um, FHA housing loans. And that's been a, a critical uh, way that a number of um, individuals are getting household, um, are getting mortgage loans and uh, it's serving as some incentives. Now, there are also tax incentives that have been provided to help people to be, um, become first-time home buyers uh, to, um, to refinance their mortgages. But at the end of the day, the overall impact, again, is, has yet to be seen and because we're still seeing in some communities extreme decline in home ownership. When we look at community development, uh, the Obama administration uh, committed funds or promised to ensure community-based investment resources uh, with regards to providing funding through the uh, Small Business Administration. So far, the Small Business Administration has only committed $295,000 to programming, and that's a very small number if we were to look at um, this is a, a, a national uh, agency providing funds across the board. Uh, but what we have seen is a mobilization and the support of a number of nonprofit and small community level organizations to mobilize uh, behind these efforts. And there are the groups that are making, at least at the local level and at the state level, making the most inroads with regards to racial disparities and dealing with many of these and absorbing much, much of the initial impact with regards to class disparities uh, in this, in this uh, economic time. And I would be reluctant to say that this is actually a, a success on the part of the Obama administration because so little has been done with regards to this. This is much more of an individual level and a community level uh, assessment. Now moving on to education, while funds have been um, designated to the Department of Education, their initiatives so far have been very state specific and community specific and um, Obama, the Obama administration has yet to really, and, and I know this sounds like has yet, has yet, has yet, and this is the, an interesting um, reality. I mean, this is part of the reality of the first 100 days. He hasn't really done as much with regards to education reform. Uh, the promise that he made in his um, during his campaign was to reform No Child Left Behind, um, and he articulated opposition to teaching the test. But so far, the uh, funds have been dispersed to the Department of Education, but no real plan has been unveiled to reform No Child Left Behind. Um, so as a result, we're beginning to see cities and states having to address these issues without federal support, which is accounting for the layoff of teachers, which is accounting for um, major funding gaps with regards to uh, providing just the basic resources for, um, for schools and for um, the education, uh, educational systems uh, within states. But if we were to look at many of the promises that were made and the, what we can look for toward the future, uh, Obama has articulated um, uh, designs to make college more affordable, whether it's through providing tax breaks or tax credits uh, for tuition, um, or providing opportunities for um, free educational opportunities in exchange for volunteerism. Um, and then also if we were to look at his, um, his articulated plan to expand Head Start and uh, Early Head Start, um, these definitely will have class and race uh, implications with regards to policy impact because many of these programs uh, serve as a balancing, um, help, help to balance out many of, the many of the disparities that we see within inner city communities, within impoverished groups, um, in terms of providing a, a minimal base and a minimal foundation uh, for educational performance uh, at the kindergarten level, and particularly K through three, where we see the greatest impact of these programs. So the expansion of these programs uh, would definitely uh, result and yield uh, positive outcomes. 
on average for the money spent for a child uh, in Head Start, in early Head Start, there's a $16,000 uh, benefit or return uh, on investment with regards to their uh, contribution to the community and contribution in terms of and their actual earning potential. So it may not seem like much, but for some that is significant. It can make a difference uh, in quality of life. Um, moving on to health care, again, he has yet to address the largest systemic problem, but he has held um, health care summits and um, meeting with several um, members of Congress uh, and key policymakers with regards to this area. Uh, one of the major policy areas that he has sought to, um, that he has been pushing, has been computerizing patient records. And already what we've begun to see with regards to this is uh, streamlining um, the, data the databases between the Dar Department of, of Defense and uh, Veteran Affairs um, offices to ensure that there's no overlap and patients aren't, um, aren't, uh, are receiving the quality of service that they should uh, and that it's not based on just a lack of uh, available records and quality <laughs> records uh, in this regards. Um, and he's also designated in the economic stimulus $3 billion for preventative care. Now these are first steps. This is not the major overhaul that was articulated during the campaign for the health care um, uh, healthcare system. But I think it's really interesting uh, when we begin to look at at what point will he address this? And I think it kind of goes back to some of what Rachel was articulating, not what is his mandate, how much leverage does he have in order to push these major issues, these major, these major concerns, these major policy areas forward. Um, a number of uh, political pundits and insiders have speculated that we'll begin to see much more um, efforts made with regards to health care reform after May. Um, and moving, moving forward, but it's going to be an incremental approach that he needs to build support within Congress for this, um, for this major health care um, initiative, but it's directly tied up with other um, policy initiatives that Obama is supporting and articulating. Now, kind of moving fairly quickly, moving quickly through. Um, women and family, uh, that's the next area that I think is, uh, is significant because one of the first, um, the pe first piece of legislation that Obama signed um, into law is the passage of the um, the pay equity bill by um, that's named the, the Lilly Ledbetter Act, and this is one of the uh, first initiatives in terms of um, that he articulated in terms of pushing gender equality, but not just in a symbolic way, but making sure that there's some substantive. Um, bite uh, behind it. As well, we see um, in terms of his articulated um, agenda, support for uh, reproductive choice, uh, also tackling um, and providing funding for research um, regarding illnesses that are, and diseases that disproportionately affect women and continue to combat domestic violence, uh, as well as addressing um, sick leave, as well as uh, flex time with regards to uh, employment and time off. We haven't really seen much with regards to this, but one thing I will say that Obama has done in terms of addressing many of the issues regarding women uh, is establishing a commission to look at um, the po how policies and how um, governmental agencies are addressing issues with regards to women and is there a disparate impact with regards to uh, the application of policies, the implementation of policies, and how these uh, disparities can be, uh, can be minimized or if, if not eradicated. The challenge is this, organ this uh, commission doesn't have um, much strength or much power and many see it as being a symbolic uh, action, but I think it's a, it's a good first step. Uh, and much, much more needs to be done, particularly with regards to, um, as I say, we're looking at it intersectionally, looking at um, the uh, looking at the impact of everyday citizens in terms of addressing the needs of women. I think the the, the pay equity bill goes far, but 
when we begin to look at some of the other issues that are affecting women and families, um, much more needs to be done. As well with regards to immigration, we didn't hear much about it during the, uh, during the campaign, and we haven't heard much or anything about it at the national level, um, aside from the violence associated with, uh, with uh, the border violence that's uh, currently uh, occurring. Now, I think this is interesting because what it does is it helps to con it contextualize or it frames the debate or it frames the discussion so that when, when the discussion does eventually shift to immigration policy and what are we going to do in a policy way to address illegal immigrants, I think it's um, those who have been living within the United States who would like to um, explore and, and, and get on the path to citizenship, I think... There should be serious policy concern with regards to the framing of the issue, the framing of, of immig the immigrant population within the United States, because although there's definitely, uh, when we look at gun control policy, access to uh, firearms, which is another part of the discussion, the, uh, the fact that they're getting into, uh, going into Mexico, that these weapons are making their way into Mexico, provides um, an interesting picture that's playing itself out in many border states uh, in terms of um, heightening um, concern and uh, creating a, a more of a hostile climate with regards to immigrants that may have nothing to do with um, with many of these uh, with many of these policies and it'd be interesting with with much of the violence that's taking place along the border and I think it will be interesting to see when Obama does begin to address this issue how he begins to frame it and rediscuss um, rediscuss and re-engage the population regarding this. Now, um, as I said, quite a few uh, political pundits and uh, political commentators have uh, indicated that the reluctance on the part of the Obama administration to address immigration in the way as it was described in his political campaign has to do with the fact that uh, of the perception that it will weigh down an already heavy domestic agenda. Uh, and so whether, whether or not he wants to weigh down with regards to immigration or de deal with the issues of health care uh, may end up being a, a, a coin toss in the eyes of some, but maybe a political um, balancing act because both of them are seen as being uh, polarizing issues uh, and heavyweight issues that will not resolve themselves quickly. The last, uh, uh, the last issue that I want to discuss, I don't know how much... Okay, last issue. Oh, one minute, no minutes. Okay, the last issue that I wanted to discuss because I think it's it's a positive on the part of the Obama administration has been to triple the size of AmeriCorps um, by increasing and, and also providing uh, an increase in the educational subsidies um, and creating a reserve of veterans of the uh, AmeriCorps program to help serve in di for disaster uh, assistance. And I think this is. Um, this is the, that was a direct campaign promise that he actually fulfilled, um, which goes back, which goes to my concluding statement, which is <laughs> my concluding statement, which is Obama made a number of promises, and I think what we're going to see now are either um, his inability for, to fulfill and to carry out many of his promises in the way that they were articulated during the campaign, due to, some of it due to the economic crisis, but then also due to um, public perception of we need something to happen now and some of these policies are going to be slow to yield results and to yield effect uh, and so uh, while I'm, I'm reluctant to say that uh, many of his policy initiatives were a failure I think it's one of those we're just going to have to wait and see what the true impact will be and what the true um, outcome will be and uh, 100 days is a little too short and we should give them a little more time okay hi I'm Nina um, first of all, I want to thank the Dean's Office, Sebastian, for inviting me on this panel. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm going to keep my comments brief um, because I would like to leave time for, um, for questions. 
maybe I'll hopefully be more provocative and uh, get everyone to ask me a few things. Um, in a 24-7 news cycle with a proliferation of mediums from network and cable to broadcast and satellite radio, from newspapers, magazines, blogs to Wikipedia, YouTube, and podcasts, I can't cover all that I might about Obama's relationship with the media in his first 100 days. Furthermore, over the past five years, as our sources of information have become fractured into the various mediums I just mentioned, we don't have the unified national news platform we once did, where everything said on ABC and NBC was also said on CBS and in the New York Times and in Newsweek. So I will proceed with that caveat and attempt instead to present the media not as a monolith speaking with one voice, because that configuration no longer reflects the media environment within which we live, but instead propose and discuss a handful of media memes that have caught hold in several venues and influenced to varying degrees the cultural information we have collected thus far about this president and his administration. Media meme number one. Um, Sebastian mentioned this in his opening comments. This meme um, referred to here as the Obama media love-in. <laughs> Um, it actually began before Obama was elected president. It was an accusation lobbied mostly by right-leaning media and picked up by both conservative and liberal news forums. The meme was fueled by the long tradition of news navel-gazing, in other words, making the reporter the story. So we actually saw a lot of, of, of news about whether or not reporters themselves could be objective about Obama. Um, as editorial endorsements for Obama in major newspapers outweighed McCain two to one, and commentators who cover the media were asking, could the press corps objectively um, cover Obama? And also, was McCain falling behind um, because of the media's lack of love? McCain actually ended up using this meme in one of his many web videos released during the campaign. And once Obama actually won the election, the question of the media's love-in with the president-elect and his ability and its ability to be objective loomed over coverage of the White House transition. And I actually would like to play you the piece of uh, the web video that McCain released about the Obama love-in, assuming that this computer wants to show it. Um, in it, we see actually uh, clips, very sort of um, Daily Show style, of um, some of the love-in, and this is the sort of first image in the clip. We see clips from uh, various, like Chris Matthews, um, from MSNBC, of saying things like, in fact, at one point, Lee Cohen actually says, I I'm sort of concerned. I don't know if I can maintain my objectivity when covering Obama. Um, and then the famous Chris Matthew quote, that when he heard Obama speak, he had a thrill going up his leg. And so it was used, <laughs> it was used by the McCain campaign you know, to sort of fuel this idea that Obama's getting this unwarranted media love and that we can't trust the media, so anytime you see any coverage of Obama, be distrustful because they're all essentially in love with him. Um, perhaps as a result of the overly uh, sensitive, soft on Obama accusation, the media honeymoon was quickly, quickly over 20 days after inauguration when on February 9th, Obama held his first press conference as president. 
Continuing to wield his ability to draw audiences, Obama secured a primetime slot on all the major networks. <clears throat> he delivered a brief address lasting just under eight minutes and took questions from the press corps for a full 51 minutes. Given the realities of the financial crisis, the mood in the White House East Room during this press conference lacked levity, and the president's remarks were reported as somber and serious. The opening question from Jennifer Lovin of AP asks, do you think that you risk losing some credibility by using dire language? This dire language meme, or the somber and serious meme, would continue to characterize both Obama's remarks that evening. How many times have we heard him begin, we face the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, and the media's coverage of his stimulus plan, somber and serious. Other memes related to somber and serious include contrasting the high spirits and joy of the election with the post-inauguration hangover. In fact, Obama's remarks during this press conference that, quote, the party is now over, became a headline writer's dream. So lots of stuff about taking aspirin and Alka-Seltzer and getting over the hangover and it's no fun anymore and cleaning up after the party and all that kind of stuff. Uh, other interesting observations about this event include the first ever blog reporter to be called on by a president during an official White House press conference. This gesture uh, proved once again that Obama is a technologically savvy president who recognizes the traditional news outlets are not the only venues worth engaging. This was also politically savvy since many readers of the left-leaning Huffington Post were his most ardent supporters during the campaign. Obama also continued to prove his savvy with traditional media by preempting popular shows like House and Chuck and commanding 59 minutes of time, leaving no room for network commentary or news analysis. Instead, the networks went quickly to the regularly scheduled and highly rated, thus advertising dollar-driven, programming. Very smart from Obama's um, perspective. No analysis of Obama's first 100 days would be complete without considering the accusation reported ad nauseum by right-leaning blogosphere, talk radio, and most prominently Fox News, that Obama's stimulus package and his additional economic initiatives were putting America on the path to socialism. Leading the charge was Glenn Beck of Fox, who, as you will see in this clip, relit the flames of the Red Scare by calling Obama's plan for America a communist plot. Capitalism uh, is being trashed at every turn. Have you noticed, or is it just me, that we seem to be marching down the road to socialism? <laughs> oh, no, it's socialism! Stop, stop, stop! <laughs> Comrades, today I bring you the news from the Western Front. Our fearless leader of the American swine say their country will never recover if the stimulus doesn't pass quickly. Oh, 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 how right he is. But comrades, you must not listen to the foolish prop. And it goes on like that for for just a while. I think they go. Um, Did anybody go from just this slide? Click on the bottom button. The oh, bottom thank left. you. Left, Third yeah. one. Third one? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. 
Uh, that animation you saw was actually created for the night before's Glenn Beck show, and it was repeated over and over, used in different ways, but repeated over and over and over again. We saw the road, literally, to communism. Um, and, uh, and he did this comrade update. I don't know if he continues to do this comrade update, but he was doing this comrade update for several, um, several weeks. Uh, this meme persists today, most virulently on talk radio, kept alive by Beck, Matt Drudge, and Rush Limbaugh. However, the power of the Obama is a socialist meme, its ability to infiltrate the mainstream media, was revealed most recently by Obama's controversial... There we are. A controversial uh, handshake with Venezuelan President Chavez. The Reuters photo of Obama and Chavez clasping hands allowed what, a, what was a fringe discourse about socialism to dictate the news cycle for several days. In fact, still. The White House was compelled enough to actually defend the Obama-Chavez meeting and respond to suggestions that the handshake was a sign of America's weakness. So the reason why I think this Obama is a socialist meme is important is not just because it's, you know, talk, hate radio and, and Fox News, but it has a way of framing discourse. So when a moment like this occurs, the discourse exists on the fringes and can spill into the mainstream media as a way of understanding what this gesture means and, and, and sort of uh, what it means for um, America. While the right-leaning media continues to nip at Obama's heels and occasionally gets a bigger bite with moments like the Chavez shake, for the most part, the fourth estate seems to regard this president as a media-savvy leader who has been able to turn missteps into polling boosts, maintain record-high approval ratings during a global financial crisis. And so what I'm finding is that there's this sort of marvel still uh, with the president coming from the mainstream media about how is he able to do this and still essentially smile. Uh, when former U.S. Senator Tom Daschle forgot to pay his taxes for three years and had to withdraw his bid for Secretary of Human and Health Services, Health and Human Services, Obama took responsibility for a bad judgment call. The media marveled at his ability to quell the storm with an apology to the American public. When Timothy Geithner's less than stellar performance selling the proposed budget threatened the success of Obama's policy push, the president appeared on 60 Minutes to sell the legislation and defend his treasure secretary. Media criticism of Geithner, at least in the mainstream media, soon disappeared. This, of course, has rekindled accusations that the media is too quick to give Obama a pass. But more significantly, his administration's communication strategy has revealed that this BlackBerry-wielding president knows how to manage the media from many angles. Online town hall meetings, op-ed pieces, appearance on late-night television, frequent updates to the White House website, online initiatives like recovery.com. Uh, gov, working the Sunday talk show circuit, and designating a press staff liaison with ethnic media outlets. It's the first time in the history of the White House press uh, staff that they've actually designated liaisons within the staff to specifically target and communicate with various ethnic media outlets. Um, but above all else, one thing is clear from the first 100 days is that Obama is his own best media asset. He has so far been able to stay ahead even while he's backpedaling. 
um, and I'll end my comments there. And there's lots of other things. One of the other things I wanted to bring up, but I, I don't know if we have time, is I'm very curious about the way the whole first 100 days is a meme in and of itself. So that we have what, not surprisingly, the media is turning into a what's called a pseudo event. I mean, it's it's becoming not just a day; it's a week long. CNN is doing this whole thing. Of course, there's uh, you know op-ed pages are filled with stuff about it. And what 100 days even means, as as Professor Fair pointed out, it's almost unfair. I mean, what can someone do in 100 days, and especially given all of the things on his plate? So perhaps in part of the discussion, we can just talk about the 100 days meme as its own influence in how we understand this president. Thanks. Thank you. So to start with the economic crisis here, and that's just a graph of the stock market. I have a lot of numbers that I'm going to share with you as we do this. And uh, I know there's nothing that excites a crowd like an economist talking, except an economist with numbers. Uh, so I've done my best to put it in pictures when possible. Um, the first thing I'd like to emphasize, though, and this actually kind of cuts to these TV commercials now that Nina was pointing out of Obama and the, quote, road to socialism. I really don't think we've had a fundamental break in terms of economic policy from George Bush. What we've had is a scaling up of a lot of the things that Bush was already doing. So I find it kind of suspicious that these same media commentators who say that now about Obama weren't saying this about Bush and his response to the financial crisis during Bush's last six months in office. It would seem equally either appropriate or inappropriate for him because fundamentally they've both taken the same path which is to not try to let the market sort this out. For the most part, most, both of them have taken consistent actions to try to prevent bankruptcies from occurring by making bailouts. In Bush's case, the bailouts were typically targeted to the financial services industry and insurance. Uh, in Obama's case, it's more broad-reaching, as one of the people mentioned earlier on in the panel, I'm sorry, I forget who, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Obama's used it to fund the interest groups that he's interested in funding. What we've seen is a switch of who gets the money but not a fundamental switch of how is the economy overall being dealt with. Uh, so I think bailouts have continued to be the norm. There's been limited amounts of market self-correction that have been allowed to occur, although I think uh, despite the interventions that have gone on trying to avoid this, slowly but surely the market corrections are taking place, uh, but it's taking longer to sort them out than maybe we could have otherwise. Uh, one thing that I think is particularly troubling in this is, and this is for the Bush administration as well, pretty much everything I have to say about the crisis that Obama's been doing that I think is probably problematic uh, could be equally said about the Bush administration. And one of its regime un uncertainty, and John Taylor's been great on this, of actually showing the market's reaction to every new announcement that's come from the administration, both Bush and Obama. And every time there's a new plan, the markets react poorly to it. Part of it is instability of property rights. The markets need predictability of knowing what the rules of the game are. But what we're seeing is, Constantly throughout this crisis, the rules of the game are always changing. That makes businesses not want to invest for the future. They don't know about security of property rights. When we all of a sudden make uh, blanket interventions that rewrite mortgages, that undermines the stability of contract. Now are you going to make an investment with a contract that you don't know will be honored later that the government might just overwrite? These things are problematic uh, and create this type of regime uncertainty, which makes it hard for investment to pick up going forward. Uh, and along with it, the kind of changing role of the government in the economy and uh, how it's managing businesses. Uh, I'll read you one quote that I, I pulled up just yesterday. It's actually from April 10th, though. Uh, see if you know where it's from. It says on April 10th that the announcement came that they're going to limit the pay of senior executives at state finance firms, such as banks and insurance companies, as part of the effort to quell public resentment at corporate high flyers during the economic crisis. Compensation packages for top executives during the recently completed business year must not exceed 90% of what they earned the prior business year. 
Executives at companies which posted drops in operating profits last year will see their compensation re levels reduced to 80% of what they earned in 2007. They said that the pay cut is conducive to equitable distribution of social income and in the interest of the nation and shareholders. Individual financial institutions have paid excessively high compensation to their executives, and the income gap between the executives and the average level of society and internal staff has widened noticeably. Pay caps for other staff members should also be considered. The source of that announcement? Sounds like the Obama administration, but it's not. That's Beijing. I think it's problematic when we're comparing quotes that come out of them, and it sounds almost exactly like what you could hear from this administration. In fact, what Obama pro uh, proposed was a $500,000 pay cap for CEOs re receiving state finance funds here in the United States. Now, what's happened with this bailout is increasing politicization of the business post, which I think is tr troubling. We need them to be dedicated to their shareholders and creating shareholder value and products for the consumers, not answering to political authorities. That's a different realm of policy and regulation that shouldn't be handled through the boardroom. I do think, as they have state funds injected to them, increasingly, and maybe rightfully so, this will become the norm because they are the funders of it, not the bondholders, the stockholders, excuse me, the stockholders and the consumers. Uh, along with this, particularly troubling to me, is the fact that all of a sudden now a president of the United States can say that he wants a resignation of a CEO and that CEO has to resign. This isn't how business management should usually be done. I have a feeling Obama probably does not know how to profitably run GM or who can profitably run it. But this is what comes part and parcel with the estate bailout funds going to the firms. Uh, so I'm encouraged by some of the companies who are now refusing the funds and saying they'd rather go it on their own than go into politicized management. But I think that's a long-term trend that I'm concerned about. Rather than setting the rules of the game and then enforcing those rules of the game, the government's becoming an active player in the game and constantly modifying the rules as it goes. Uh, in response to the crisis, here I've kind of put, and this is the consistency between the Bush and Obama in this, is the answer has been massive injections of funds either targeted to specific companies or more generally in fiscal stimulus packages more recently with Obama. Uh, the red ones are most of the ones that were started and approved under Bush. Uh, the blue ones are the new ones for Obama. The, the purple, that's my red and blue, uh, were either started under Bush and continued under Obama or authorized under Bush and now being administered, administered actively by Obama. Uh, what you find is about $700 billion in terms of initial stimulus spending by Bush targeted to particular companies going bankrupt. Uh, Fannie and Freddie get another 400 or so. Uh, TARP is about a $700 billion program in and of itself that's currently being administered by the Obama administration now. Uh, I'm having a hard time seeing all the way over to the other end of my slide, but we have uh, the homeowners bailout which should be to the tune of about 300 million, 400 billion, uh, yeah, about 300, and then the fiscal stimulus itself that comes in just shy of 800 billion dollars. Uh, so really, what we're seeing, it's not all of a sudden that, like the the commercial Nina showed, a road to socialism with Obama, he's massive spending now. He's really not doing anything different than what Bush was already doing. What he's done is switch which interest groups are getting the money. As was pointed out in one of the other commentaries here, uh, one of the things that Obama wants to push is green jobs initiative. And there might well be good reasons for it, but those good reasons aren't fiscal stimulus reasons. Those would be reasons done on a cost-benefit basis of benefits to the environment in excess of the cost of implementing the policies, not on some net job creation. We don't have a net job shortage. We have people in the wrong jobs that during a bubble economy, certain industries got overexpanded that now need to contract, 
And all of these stimuluses that go in ultimately tend to prop up those bad investments and keep people at the wrong jobs, capital at the wrong factories. We need more of a reshuffling to go on. Uh, so what's changed is, well, Bush's cronies on Wall Street and in investment firms were getting the funds. Now it's Obama's initiatives that are getting the funds instead. It's not a fundamental change, of course, just distributional of who's getting it. Uh, to put it in perspective, these numbers are pretty big. Trillions of dollars now when you combine them together. So this is just some of the other big initiatives adjusted for inflation uh, to today's dollars to look at the size of this in comparison. The Iraq war, which Bush took a lot of flack for the spending on and the underestimation of the cost, and I think rightfully so, uh, pales in comparison to what just Bush by himself did on the spending in response to the crisis, and Bush, Obama, and combined completely dwarfs it. When we're looking at major initiatives over the last hundred years or so, things like Panama Canal don't even pop up on my axis here. World War II is about it for getting bigger. The difference is, at World War II, we paid for a lot of it at the time. People were making the goods and services that were going overseas to blow things up. Right now, we financed a lot of it. This is a lot of debt we're accumulating that will have to either be paid for or defaulted on. I mentioned in the fall when we did this that the laws of arithmetic might not apply during a campaign, but they're going to have to apply once you get in office. So far, they haven't. They've continued to spend. And one of the warnings I gave then was Bush has massively spent for years, often unproductively, and Obama's inheriting that debt, and that's something he's going to have to deal with. That's what we're adding on to right now, which I think limits how much more Obama can do this type of thing. So where are we headed? This here is the forecast by the White House itself and the Congressional Budget Office. So the gray lines to the left, to the left under the Bush years are the actual deficits that were incurred. This year, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that with our budget, we'll have another $1.85 trillion in debt. The White House, $100 billion less, $1.75 trillion. These debts go out for the foreseeable future, piling up. Trillions of dollars. This is lots of money. It's hard to even conceive of what this is. He mentioned the need for fiscal restraint. Bush has, uh, excuse me, Obama has now instructed his cabinet members to cut $100 million from this year's budget. Perspective, <laughs> the $100 million is the little dot up there. The, the $3.69 trillion is the big circle. Put in other words, if it was a family earning $50,000 and they were going to spend in excess of the income they come in in a proportion our government does, they'd be spending about $75,000. And then if they decided to trim an equally proportionate amount of this $100 million out of their budget, it would mean cutting about $2 a year or one cup of coffee out of their planned spending. This is not fiscal restraint that won't do anything to get us off the fundamental path that we're going on of piling up deficit after deficit after deficit. So where are we right now on that? What he inherited from Bush is debt to GDP ratio of about 80%. The government owes about 80% of the value of everything that's produced in the economy in one year. This is a look around the world right now at all of the other countries and how much debt they have. For leaders ahead of us, there are very few. And those ones who are, aren't particularly good examples. Japan, after almost two decades of sluggish growth and or recession, has piled up significantly over 100% debt to GDP ratio. Italy, long known as a tiger for economic performance, <laughs> also does. That is about it for the developed Western world. After that, we have to look at such examples as Egypt, Sudan, Zimbabwe, not exactly examples that we want to aspire to get to. But when we're going to continue to pile up these deficits, 
That's where we're heading. So right now, in the far left corner, you see the USA Today as, about, as your debt-to-GDP ratio. If we take the White House forecasts of the budget deficits over the next decade and assume, I think pretty generously, a 3% rate of, econo- of real economic growth over this time period, would crawl to just under 100% debt-to-GDP ratio by the time those forecasts are out. If we follow the CBO estimates, we'll be up over 115% of debt-to-GDP ratio. Perspective for right now in the world, Zimbabwe is about 240%. And they're dealing with their debt the way a lot of countries have dealt with high debt ratios in the past. Print money. That's not working out so well for them. They now have the second highest rate of inflation observed in recorded human history behind only Germany after World War I. Japan, as I mentioned, already has a high one. This has been piled up, actually, of years of fiscal stimulus packages following their collapse in 1991, actually in terms of a similar economic collapse, although not completely the same, but similar to what we experienced, where they had a housing and stock market bubble that collapsed in 1991. In response to this, over the course of the 1990s, they had 10 different fiscal stimulus packages, some of them larger as a percent of their economy than the one Obama just passed, some of them smaller. They also tried to reflate their economy by by flooding it with liquidity, something our Federal Reserve has done, and by nationalizing and bailing out banks, something else that we have done. Their result was no recovery, and instead all of these spending packages ultimately burdened their economy. Now they have this huge debt-to-GDP ratio. Uh, The other ones that fall up in that area right now are Lebanon and Jamaica. A couple other historical perspectives in more recent times that I put up there that faced a crisis when they got up near this level. Ireland got up to about 116, 120% debt-to-GDP ratio in the mid-1980s. Uh, they were able to successfully transform out of this. They were facing a payments crisis. The prime minister they elected was one of the ones who had spent the money eight years prior to get them into that situation. He ran on a program of not uh, reversing any of the spending, but once he got in, he really didn't have much alternative. They had already tried raising taxes. They couldn't raise taxes any higher with the expectation of getting enough revenue to pay for it. Inflating it away wasn't much of an option as they were joining the European monetary system as you're starting to move towards European Union. You can't inflate. Uh, They couldn't issue more debt because people were no longer willing to finance it. So he had one option left to him, which was to cut spending. Ireland, you actually saw an example where significant change in the size of government in relation to the economy over a five-year period. Then later, of course, the 1990s were a tiger economy for Ireland, where they were very successful. Uh, India in 1991, a much lower debt-to-GDP ratio, approximately where we are today, faced a crisis as well. Theirs, I think, it's harder to draw comparisons to because where they had capital controls, they had to have enough exports in order to have uh, currency reserves in order to pay their debt, so they got themselves into trouble a bit quicker. Uh, that did usher, in a usher uh, excuse me, usher in an era of reforms then. Uh, parallels are harder to draw with us. But basically, when we start getting up over the 100% debt-to-GDP ratio, that's when we start getting into the problem zone of how are we going to continue to finance this? Will people continue to lend to us? Or do governments start inflating to get out of the problem? Um, And in the United States case, there's both reasons to be more optimistic that they could carry more debt and less optimistic. One reason for more is fundamentally the U.S. still remains, albeit maybe the tallest dwarf, one of the better countries, more stable countries in the world in which to invest. Uh, Downside, of course, is we're a giant in terms of the world economy. For a country like Ireland to take... Uh, 120% debt to GDP, that doesn't require a significant share of the world's savings to finance. For the United States to do that, it does require a higher and higher percent of the world's uh, uh, savings to finance. Basically, we're forecasting $9 trillion in net new debt over the next decade. The entire world economy right now sits at about $60 trillion. It's going to be hard to pull in that type of savings to finance that. So how do we deal with it? Here are some choices. 
a lot of them not very pleasant. The first is inflation, making the money literally worth the paper it's printed on. Uh, almost all cases of high rates of inflation have been preceded by fiscal imbalance. We have fiscal imbalance now. It's going to make it more and more tempting to inflate. And inflation is a danger, I think, that's looming for the United States. Uh, already during this crisis and trying to inject liquidity into the banking system, the monetary base has expanded by about 90%. Now, you haven't seen that come into prices or in bank lending because the banks are stopping most of it up as extra reserves. Uh, so you've seen only M1, the broader, uh, a broader measure of money, grow by only 18%, and more broad measures of money grow even less because basically banks are just holding it as reserves to try to keep them more liquid now. Uh, back before the crisis started, they had about 4.4% of total reserves were excess. Excess means in addition to what's required by the banking system of them. Now, 93% of all reserves are excess reserves. So there's a lot of that already out there that if the banks decide to start lending could become new inflation. If the government starts printing even more to finance this debt, it could become significant. Uh, so I usually don't give investment advice, but my own that, only that I give is get a fixed rate mortgage if you have a house. Uh, because inflation then is your friend. I just did it. Um, another option is taxing. It's going to be hard to raise taxes to the degree that would be necessary to finance $9 trillion worth of new deficit to get rid of that without also crippling the incentives to in invest and work. And as you curtail those, you also curtail the revenue that you get. So a 0% tax rate gets you zero revenue. 100% tax rate also gets you zero revenue because nobody works. Now we know it's not a linear relationship, it's a curve. The question is, do we go over the hump on the curve when you have to finance that much of it? Third option, which actually might be somewhat attractive, and I had a hard time getting an economic picture on Google Images of default, so I had to settle for the key, is to default on it. Now, if the US defaults on its debts, it will certainly have ramifications in broader financial markets <laughs> and in the, abil the ability of the government to issue more debt in the future. But let's be honest, if they inflate the debt away, that in and of itself is going to make it harder for them to issue debt in the future, at least at more reasonable interest rates. What would be the upside of default from a U.S. citizen's perspective? A lot of foreigners own a lot of the debt. It would be them who's left holding the empty bag, uh, which seems preferable to U.S. citizens holding the bag. Uh, I don't think it's the best option, but it might be one that's played in. The, the fourth one, then, is the Irish example, which is dra dramatically cut spending in programs. Uh, Ireland was 50, the Irish government was consuming 55% of GNP in 1985. That fell to 40% by 1990. So despite all of the rhetoric of Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, in terms of shrinking the role of government in the economy, what happened in Ireland was much, much more significant than either of those countries. As a result, they got their deficit cured almost immediately within two years of the cuts. They had a, uh, a net surplus, but then they got their government debt ratio back down under 100% of GDP within five years and paid it way down over the course of the 1990s while they were running surpluses plus actually growing very rapidly. So, so far that was a lot of bad. I'll conclude with just a couple of good things. Uh, one is I'm yet still an optimist. Uh, so I don't think anything that Obama or Bush has done has really helped us get out of this crisis. If anything, it's prolonged it by delaying the adjust adjustment process. If they had adopted policies for expedited bankruptcy and things like that, we might have had a quickening of the process. Instead, I think they've slowed it down. Although I don't think they've stopped it. I think we're going through the correction. So I expect that 10 years from now or 8 years from now when Obama leaves office, we'll probably be richer and have a higher standard of living then than we are now. But I don't expect it to be a great 10 years, especially if policies like this continue. We're slowing us down from what we could have done. Uh, other things that I can say that he's actually, so that's optimism. I guess I'm saying 
I don't think he's doing it right, but he's not doing it so wrong as that he'll drag us backwards. Optimism, Cuba. I was encouraged by the summit of the Americas meetings where he said it's time for a new beginning with Cuba. That's why my cigar is up there. Maybe we'll end this insane embargo eventually. It's clearly not worked from a foreign policy objective for 50 years. Uh, and what, if anything, what it does is it gives uh, the Cuban government a scapegoat in the United States to give it for a reason of why the poverty is there as opposed to their own wrongheaded policies. And as an added bonus, I could smoke Cuban cigars more easily. Uh, I had some hopes for the war on drugs, but those are quickly vanishing. One thing that the Obama administration signaled early on, actually, during the campaign, was he said he wasn't going to use uh, federal enforcement to interfere with state laws, so states that had approved, approved mer mer uh, medical marijuana laws. He was saying he wasn't going to use the DEA to conduct raids and enforce federal law on. That has changed. Uh, it happened just last week. And in terms of somebody who was actually uh, had one of the medical marijuana stores in California on the Central Coast. And it was quite explicit. Like, the city council got there and cut the ribbon at the opening ceremony for the place. This was not like some shady deal at all. It was sponsored by the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the guy had got raided by the federal agents, and he had his trial and was convicted. And sentencing was supposed to occur, and the judge actually wrote the attorney general's office and asked for directions on what the new uh, administration's policies towards this, since they had signaled that they weren't going to do these raids anymore, to inform the sentencing. And the uh, attorney general wrote back that uh, the conviction of the defendant is entirely consistent with the policies of the Department of Justice and public statements by the attorney general with respect to these prosecutions. Uh, and he has still stated that the Department of Judgment, uh, excuse me, the Department of Justice uh, will still go after those people who violate both federal and state law. I think what he really means is either federal or state law. Uh, so I was kind of hopeful that this would improve, at least by rhetoric it sounded like it might, but now it seems like it's not. I only found that out yesterday, actually. So this was originally on here as a, a upshot, but now I'm not so sure. Uh, never mind that we're amping up enforcement in Mexico. And meanwhile, I've, the war on drugs, I think, is one of the most economically irrational things we do, and for that matter, has all sorts of other social spillovers here that I think are horrible. Uh, I didn't expect him to make a fundamental change in it, but I was hoping for a marginal improvement. I'm doubting that now. Final one was war. Uh, one of the things that jacked up our budget deficits so much under the Bush years was the war in Iraq. Uh, there was signaling by Obama early on that he wanted to get us out of there. I'm less hopeful that that will happen any time in his first administration now. Uh, and for that matter, it seems increasingly that the rhetoric is, while he might want to downplay what's going on in Iraq or descale some of that, it seems like he wants to amp up what's going on in Afghanistan, which means on net I don't think we're getting an economic break from these wars. So I had a little bit of hope. And I'm stuck with Cuba, and really all we've had is talk there. Thanks, Sebastian, for letting me share my happiness. This is for everyone. If you guys could describe in one sentence a selling point for Obama based on his 100 days to the election or like tomorrow, he's put with one sentence for something he could sell himself on. I could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> the best is yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still better than the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> I did out. <laughs> <laughs>
um, about, like, we just talked about the media and how the different forms, it's becoming more fractured. So we have blogs and we have um, all sorts of different forms. And, and you said that now there's sort of less of a monolithic kind of idea of media, but they only have so much content to cover. Um, like if you, if when, for instance, uh, President Obama apologized for the Tom Daschle thing, he went on a bunch of talk shows and pretty much said the same thing. Um, there's not too many different angles you can take that story. So there, sure, there's may, there may be more fraction, but um, they only have so much. They all, they all have the same content to cover. So how is that significant? Right. So what ends up happening because I mean, you make, raise a really good point. It, there's always been sort of the same amount of content to cover because there's always been only one president at a time and, you know, 50 members of the Senate and so forth. Um, and so what's happened is that because of both the 24-7 news cycle and the explosion in outlets is that there is a ton of ad nauseum commentary and analysis and the creation of events out of non-events, which actually would tie into the thing I left with, with let's talk about this 100 days thing, right? 100 days, the first 100 days, it was noted, you know, if you, if you go back over, you know, the past like 50 years of, of covering, um, and I haven't looked at when it first started as a meme, but that would be an interesting thing to do. You know, it was noted, and, and, and there was, be, you know, some analysis of how he's done, but just go to CNN today and see what they've got prepared for you next week. I mean, that's what happens, is you take very little content and you, you chop it up, you rearrange it, you remix it as many ways as you possibly can, and then you add layers and layers and layers of talk and commentary and talk and commentary. So to actually go and tune into Fox News, for example, or MSNBC, to find the news show that's buried amongst a t you know, a ton of commentary and so forth. And that's essentially, you know, you raise something interesting with blogs as well. You know, I think that's connected to blogs, is that the blogs are still going to primary news sources like the New York Times, pulling that news and reconfiguring it. Now, some of them are actually doing their own reporting, but the majority of blogs are just remixing of, of old news. So what I think that, what I think that creates is a kind of like, uh, echo chamber and super analysis and so forth. And, and I don't know how useful it is, I don't know how informational it is, but that's what we've got, a cacophony. Professor um, Bauer, uh, about um, when you talked about the possible solution, basically printing more money, uh, increasing taxes, um, voting or following the Irish model, uh, is for example, if we just theoretically we manage to increase our GDP in the future, for example, say the next 10 years, uh, at a greater rate than what the models are saying, for example, is this going to help us get quicker out of debt? Uh, not quicker, just the debt would become less burdensome as a percent of our economy. So. What I had there was assuming 3% real growth, which I think is pretty generous for an industrialized country, especially one that's headed into a recession right now, uh, which means not 3%, but negative growth. Uh, but yeah, sure, if we grew like Ireland did in the late 1990s of nearly 10% per year, that'll make it not above 100% of debt to GDP. We'll get down much lower than that, and it won't be, much of a, there won't be a fiscal crisis, uh, or at least I wouldn't expect a fiscal crisis. But I also have no reason at all to expect anything near 10% growth. Uh, the entrepreneurs are great at staying one step ahead of idiotic policies, but not 10% a year. <laughs> Um, 
for us in economics is obviously the, the forecast has everything to do with how much uh, regime uncertainty the new the new policies would create. Obviously, you brought a, a, a new point, which I think is, is positive from my perspective, in that many of these changes might not be able to take effect, that is lessening the effect on, on the changes of rules of game. How much do you expect um, the, of, the, of the Obama policies that he promised he'll be able to to uh, get uh, full approval of you know, the main ones? Uh, based on my data, not a lot, but <laughs> but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And you know, another analysis that should have could have been done um, would be to examine the times of massive legislative change and what the election results look like at those times. Because, and I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. Um, I think he'll probably be able to make, I mean, he does have the House, but what he needs to get are, is the 60 in the Senate. So no matter what he does, and the Republicans have every incentive to be united against him. So he has to, and they, the Democrats, have to find common ground, which is going to be watered down for everything, because they are, even though they're voting party line, there is dispersion in how they feel about all of his policies. Dr. Uh, you mentioned the, the Conteo effect. Did you know, in your research, did you find any evidence that suggested that state level legislatures follow this trend at all? They do, yes. And there's, actually there are more articles about state level uh, Conteo effects than there are about national level um, So it's probably even stronger Um, just a question about filibustering and requiring 60 um, to getting the legislation passed. I found it fascinating that you needed only 51 votes during uh, the Bush uh, years in Republican uh, control of the Senate, and now all of a sudden we need 60. And I'd like to know if you could uh, comment about that. There's been no change in the laws of the Senate, but suddenly you require 60 votes to get anything done, whereas you needed 51 during the uh, Republican control of the Senate. Okay, question. Um, it gets the the follow-up is, what did Bush get done? And um, the answer is, I mean, there's he had some legislation passed, but he wasn't able to get a lot of the things that he wanted to get passed passed. So he didn't make any progress on immigration reform, which he had stated as a major campaign promise. He didn't get Social Security reform, which he had stated as a major campaign promise, and on down the line. So the filibuster did play itself out in some of the, the key legislation that he had wanted. I think it probably, just as a quick follow-up, it probably comes out most uh, in the in things like confirming judges and whatnot. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out if the rules have changed so that we need, you need an additional nine votes now to get anybody through the Senate as opposed to, I just, I find it fascinating to see that nothing changed about the rules, but the effect uh, certainly is different. Yeah, this question is kind of for everyone um, because I think it addresses everything you said. To what extent is the public not getting it? I mean, from the economic standpoint, Obama's continuing Bush spending, and they didn't really vote someone who said, I'm going to cut spending dramatically. Um, from the social program that Professor Kerr said, um, to what extent are, is the public expecting change too quickly? I mean, 100 days, as you said, is 
largest seem to expect a lot. In terms of the media, how is the public getting information? Is there still this love fest for Obama? Or is the other information that it's getting just too radical where you can't even find truth? And then with what Professor Cobb said about the role of Congress, um, if Congress is dictating so much of what happens in D.C., why isn't the public really trying to push Congress to change its behavior? Sure. Uh, no, the, repu the, the public still doesn't get the economics behind the economic crisis. Uh, I don't find that particularly surprising. Everybody still thinks that somehow capitalism failed in this event. Listen, if we took Michael Phelps and we put handcuffs on his feet and his hands and tied a 300-pound uh, weight to him and threw him in a swimming pool, we wouldn't say swimming failed. We'd say that there was a lot of things that prevented him from swimming. And there were tons of regulation, in particular expansionary monetary policy by the Federal Reserve that contributed to the housing bubble. And until people understand some of the origins of the crisis, they're not going to understand better ways to deal with the consequences of it. I think just to take the pressure off of my other colleagues, I mean, I think since the media is the conduit between the public and the policies that Obama is trying to push, although he has done some things to try and go around the media, it's always been really difficult to cover finances, let alone a financial crisis, in the mainstream media. Um, you know, for a variety of reasons. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say people can't get it, but it is—it's dense and it's difficult. And unfortunately, the most of the media outlets we have don't spend the time or the resources to help the public understand it. The venues are there. It takes a lot of digging, and you have to become almost a financial guru on your own to get it. Um, so I, you know, I, as someone who can barely understand my TIA CREF statement, you know, I, I, I have some sympathy for how difficult it is to try and see through all of this. And then, of course, there is, and I, I'll repeat it, there's a layer of politi politicalization, of course, of the discourse, not just by Republicans versus Democrats. You kind of expect that. But there's a political politicalization of the discourse by the people who are supposed to be giving us the truth, like the news analysis. It's, it's become so um, divided, whether you are MSNBC to the left or you're Fox to the right, that it's, I think it's difficult for people to see through that, to hear through that, um, on top of the fact that all of that heavily, and to use your metaphor, shackling the American public from understanding something that already is really difficult and dense and confusing. Yeah, just to echo that. I was doing an interview for ABC, and I used the word monetary policy, and they stopped the camera and said, no, no, you can't use that word. So if we can't use that word, it gets difficult to describe how expansionary monetary policy causes a bubble. I, I would just... <laughs> Printing money is what they needed me to say. Yeah, right. Do you got a graphic for that? Well, I was just going to say that I think for individuals, in their lives is so immediate that they want immediate relief and the expectation that it will come faster than the actual process of creating programs and then funding them uh, actually takes place. But in some respects, I, from the citizen side, I don't see the impatience from them as I do from the uh, state and the city level. Individuals are finding creative strategies to make it work in many instances, <coughs> while yes, are those who are directly being affected and they are pushing the system, but I think it's individual perspective of how it's impacting their lives. Mm -hmm. so. Say that the same people who elected the members of Congress elected president, and so, but people are going to look to their members of Congress for their immediate needs, and the president. So there's a, there's a fundamental, you know, what they expect out of out of their local parochial interests is separate from what they expect. They expect the president to follow suit. The president
435 very local parochial interests, and 100 a little bit less. I was told historically the media was supposed to kind of serve the public, but it seems now more they serve the government than the public. And uh, I've seen uh, old clips of, of economists being like laughed off, uh, laughed off of CNN for saying that the housing market was going to crash. And uh, I've seen uh, the guy from was it Fast Money or something? He was. He admitted on the John Stewart show that he had information. He was misleading people, and. Uh, I've, I've heard just from uh, friends in foreign countries that we don't get a lot of news that the world gets. How trustworthy is the media? And uh, where would I be able to find a source of media that isn't as biased and a little more, uh, mm -hmm. I like to say, educated? Well, my first response to you is actually to challenge one of your assumptions. I don't think that the media serves the public, unfortunately, or the government. It traditionally has served corporations. And that is, can be good in many ways, um, and in some ways it could be bad. And I think that, and they serve themselves. <laughs> I should add, they serve themselves. They are corporations. So a lot of, a lot of the problems you see, I mean, for example, Fast Money and, and that whole debacle, uh, nobody wants to deliver bad news because bad news is not entirely attractive for advertisers to stick in between um, for, to get you to buy things. And, and the fundamental... Uh, structuring of media in the United States based on advertising, which again produces a lot of good things, can also be complicated, particularly by a financial crisis. I mean, the, you know, a, a financial crisis that is affecting media organizations themselves. Advertising revenue has plummeted for all kinds of media. It's not just journalism that's in trouble, right? We're not just potentially losing the Boston Globe. There's a lot of, of, of networks and magazines are getting thinner. I don't know if you've noticed any magazine that you get, like a women's magazine or Wired, they're getting thinner because the ads aren't there. The whole point is, is that nobody wants, there's no revenue for ads and nobody wants to be advertising during, you know, bad, depressing stories and so forth. So that fundamental relationship challenges you getting um, information that you might consider unbiased or at least uh, presenting a greater diversity of, of viewpoints. And that was a fundamental flaw of Fast Money. You know, he... He was serving a higher power, which was ratings, and, and he was also serving, you know, the friends that he had who were the heads of some of these corporations. So it's, it's really de depressing. My response to you, which is students ask me this all the time, you have to look in so many places. I mean, you have to not expect to get it from one source. I do recommend reading some uh, internationally recognized papers, you know. I, I would recommend if you can read some, you know, in, if it, in English language, if that's your language requirement, papers about the U.S., but then also just going to many, many sources. I find it frustrating, but also humorous to watch Fox and MSNBC right next to each other. You know, and in some ways, Daily uh, John Stewart does that for me with all those mix-ups and mashups. But that just gives you a taste of like how, if you listen to one, you listen to the other. You might be able to suss out in the middle of that something. Um, but in addition to that, don't just get information from news sources. Get information from your teachers. Get information, you know, from experts. Get information from books. I mean, learn about it not just through news outlets. Learn about it in other ways. Subscribe to the Economist. I think uh, the Economist is good. It has its, it also has its, its it also has its problems, but you know, again, it has a much more international focus, so you will get a little bit uh, a less of the sort of internal navel gazing. <laughs>
this was a quick follow-up to that. I would say find lots of information and then critically analyze it. You know, not to the level of you'd be doing research papers on it, but just simply consider the bias of the speaker and consider their history about whether or not they've been right or wrong. You know, somebody who's on TV who gets great ratings who's been wrong for 10 years in a row, you should probably uh, discount them. But uh, so just when you're reading it, consider bias. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I just Terry's gone now, but I want to mention something. I see what. Your reaction, Ben, um, how would an economist respond to maybe a criticism she might bring up that, um, you know, employment for, unemployment for ethnic minorities, African-Americans is much higher than it is for other, for other, other classes, other races. And we're talking, and you're talking about cutting spending to, to control the deficit. And cutting spending in a time, like, what, what's the response for those minorities and uh, uh, how, how would we deal with that? Is it just tough and when things pick up they'll be they'll, they'll be better off or, or what should we do about that? Um, well the number on the unemployment I'm not particularly surprised that it's higher because it's usually higher right. and actually the number she used was like 8.7 or something yeah. like that and the overall is only 8.1 so it means there's not that greater disparity you know spread between the two groups mm -hmm. but I'd actually ask so I'd have to think about all of the particular parts of the stimulus but in terms of like the economic and job creative aspects of it, I don't think that very much of it is targeted towards minorities. I certainly don't expect that in terms of the green jobs that are being promoted in there that they'd be disproportionately minority. It would probably be the opposite, actually. Um, but I'd have to think more about the individual policies in there. Okay. I don't really know off the top of my head. Okay. Well, really, uh, 17 minutes past the time. I want to end. Um, with two quotes. I think one of coming from Europe, one of the most interesting changes that has taken place over the last few months is the way that people talk about the government and the expectations that people have about the government. I want to quote two um, presidentials, two presidents uh, talking about the government. President Reagan in the 1980s uh, made a famous statement, and I'm quoting, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I am from the government, and I am here to help. <laughs> President Obama's inauguration speech. There are some who question, and I'm quoting, the scale of our ambition, who suggest that our system cannot tolerate too many changes. What the cynics fail to understand is that the ground has shifted beneath them. The question we ask today is not whether our government is too big or too small, but whether it works. So I want to end it here. I want to thank all the panelists for the very interesting presentation and all of you for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you.